0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision-making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker, Goldman Sachs. So in today's startup ecosystem, founders of consumer apps are keenly focused on building the next big viral app. In fact, the startup ecosystem has actually broken down this concept of virality into a science. And oftentimes, that practice is referred to conventionally as growth hacking or growth marketing. So whether through social sharing, scraping Craigslist, or using user referrals, top companies like Airbnb, Groupon, Uber, and PayPal have all ridden this wave of virality to billion dollar valuations. So that is why I am very excited to announce Jared Hecht, the former CEO and co-founder of GroupMe, as today's podcast guest. Now, back in 2010, when Jared first founded GroupMe, the idea of virality was still fairly nascent. And as GroupMe scaled to millions of users in just a year, it pioneered some of today's most common growth tactics like invites and referrals. Now, Jared has been quite busy since selling GroupMe to Microsoft and Skype in 2011 and is now leading Fundera, the leading small business focused loan marketplace. So in today's episode, Jared and I discuss his experience leading GroupMe in the early days of mobile, as well as his reflections on selling to a strategic. Additionally, Jared and I discuss how he's now enabling the small business economy through Fundera. So let's get started. Hey, Jared, how's it going? Going great. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, excited to have you on to talk about GroupMe and Fundera. So why don't we start with a bit on your background and your career progression?
1: Sure. I went to college in New York City and graduated from Columbia in 2009. Like the day after I graduated, I started working in tech as an early employee at Tumblr. I joined as like the sixth or seventh employee, somewhat of a jack of all trades. The president had brought me in because he was the only person doing things on the business and operational side of the house and just needed help. So I just tried to pick up all the scraps that were either just not worth his time, or he just didn't have the bandwidth to deal with. And I ended up doing a whole slew of things there ranging from business development, analytics to international expansion. And that was a really awesome opportunity for me just to understand what a tech startup was like, especially at a very early stage. For some reason, the president there, John Maloney trusted me with a lot of things to the point where like I was invited to board meetings and help prep materials so I also got to get visibility into how did investors and venture capitalists actually think about the growth of a consumer internet startup so I really just got an immense amount of visibility essentially into like how the sausage is made behind the scenes and I always knew that I wanted to do my own company one day I have had somewhat of an entrepreneurial background whether that was you know, starting and playing in a bunch of bands in college and in high school, which ironically, like I actually do think is a pretty entrepreneurial thing, like getting people excited about playing music that maybe they would have not been excited about before. And then really like invested in it to starting a bunch of music, marketing and production companies in college, managing bands. And then I also had an experience at Columbia where I was the publisher of a guidebook to New York City that was distributed to a bunch of undergraduate students and graduate students across various Institutions in New York. I always kind of had this proclivity towards, you know, entrepreneurship and, and just doing things. So I really used Tumblr as a learning opportunity to try and absorb as much as possible, in the hopes that one day, many years down the road, I would go and start my own company. That timeline was rapidly accelerated. One of my best friends, a guy named Steve Martosi, who I met through music, we share a passion for going to live music together, bands like Fish and The Grateful Dead and the Disco Biscuits was a software engineer at Gil Group in New York City at that point in time and we would always bounce ideas off one another like hey what do you think about this what do you think about that he had had a startup before that he got a little bit burnt by and was kind of comfortable at Guilt, but he also knew that one day he wanted to do another startup and then the idea for GroupMe came along and we both decided to go build a prototype at TechCrunch Disrupt hackathon I think in 2010 That ended up becoming GroupMe and left our jobs to go pursue that. GroupMe was a really fast and fun ride. We were doing it independently for, I think, a little over a year before we ended up selling it to Skype and Microsoft. Was at Microsoft for two years and after Microsoft ended up building Fundera. I'm happy to tell the story about that, but I'm sure we'll get to that shortly.
0: Yeah, so why don't we stick with GroupMe for now and and we'll dive into Fundera in a bit. But with GroupMe, what was the rationale behind deciding to start that business? I mean, at the time, there are quite a few different ways that people could communicate as a group. So then what was the pain point you were trying to solve?
1: (laughs) It wasn't, you know, I categorize it more as like a, a really fun product than a business in and of itself. And ironically, at that point in time, you know, end of 2009, 2010, there really weren't a lot of ways for people to communicate as a group like the primary way to communicate as a group was email. And Steve and I had kind of grown up going to see live music and music festivals. And the impetus behind GroupMe really stemmed from an email chain that my, who was then my girlfriend, now my wife and mother of our two children, wonderful person, Carrie Weprin, was on. And it was her and a bunch of friends trying to communicate going out to a music festival in Colorado. And she woke up one morning and was like, this is dumb. Like, it's annoying to be on this email chain. Once we actually get to the event or like go to the place of the event, this breaks down entirely. Like nobody's communicating over reply all email. Very frequently when we're in these settings, like there's no data connection and email actually breaks down. This was also in the days where not everybody in the world had migrated to a smartphone. And she was like, I just want to be able to do like this email chain over text message. And that was a little bit of an aha moment. It's like, wow, okay, we should be able to do that. Why can't we do Reply All SMS? So I called up Steve and said, hey, we're going to this music festival. Why can't we do Reply All SMS? And he was like, that's a really good question. And then we talked for around three hours about what we could actually build on top of Reply All SMS functionality and what that would look like if we actually migrated it to some form of over-the-top service and could build cool features, location-based stuff. What are the different ways that we can actually support groups communicating and make that experience significantly better? And we entered a hackathon to try and just build a prototype and see if we could actually build a reply SMS application. We did, and that ended up turning into group, really to solve a problem of how do we communicate better with one another in a group when we go to see live music.
0: That's great. And could you give the audience a sense of scale here? So if you remember the numbers around after your first year, how many users were on, maybe after two years and such, and, and how viral that app became?
1: So after our first year, there were roughly around a million users wow. that were using the application or just over like using GroupMe over SMS. Like you didn't have to have the app installed to actually be an active participant in a group. After two years, I don't quite remember, but it was more than that. And really, ever since that Skype and Microsoft acquisition, it's always been a top 100 app in the App Store, like a top 10 app in social networking in the App Store as well. And I think virtually every college student in the country uses GroupMe today.
0: Yep. And I would say that my GroupMe app is still installed and very healthy even post-graduation. So it's been fairly sticky just given all the group chats there that are with close friends from college and such. But with that, was there any specific point in the life of the app where you hit that hockey stick growth and really exploded to 1 million users in that first year?
1: It's hard to pinpoint like an exact date or an exact month when it really started to happen. It really kind of just happened naturally, immediately. Like the app inherently was viral, right? The average group size was six people. And then statistically, like one and a half people that were added to a group would then go on and start their own group of another average size of six people. And that just perpetuated and continued to spiral and spiral, not out of control, but like healthily up and to the right, to the point where, you know, within our first year, we were sending like billions of text messages. And I think one of the things that people don't know about GroupMe is that we were paying for every single text message that was sent through our system, and we were generating zero dollars in revenue. <laughs> so we were hemorrhaging cash as this service was scaling just to support the infrastructure and communications. But... But then just started working on day one, and it was really exciting to see. Like, We literally built this thing at a hackathon, started working, and then that week put in our notice with our bosses at Gilt and Tumblr, respectively.
0: Got it, that makes sense. Then I would assume that immense need for cash was one of the rationalizations for eventually selling to Microsoft and Skype?
1: Yeah, that was one of the rationalizations. Although by that point in time, we had done a good job really like understanding the landscape of where all the infrastructure providers that enable SMS and cutting deals with them. So we were kind of just progressively got closer and closer to the metal. Like we weren't necessarily, we started on Twilio and then we kind of tried to figure out who are the actual infrastructure providers that Twilio was built on top of. But we did get slightly better at mitigating some of those SMS costs, but not to the point where we weren't like hemorrhaging hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we also tried to like transition people from SMS to the app, which was free effectively. But we needed to find a way to either do that faster or eliminate those SMS costs. And Skype has global SMS infrastructure. So part of the impetus behind the acquisition was, hey, but we've already built out all this infrastructure over the course of the past decade. Let's try and get GroupMe on top of that so we can scale cost-effectively, not just in the US, but globally. And the other part of it was like, if you think about who you use Skype with, or at least who like Skype's install base use Skype with, it's really about close ties, right? It's about staying connected with your family and your best friends all across the globe. And there was natural overlap there in regards to who you use GroupMe with. GroupMe was all about close ties, different pockets of friends, family, people that you have similar interests with across various aspects of your life. So we really viewed GroupMe as in like GroupMe plus Skype as the network of close ties, Skype being really like profoundly entrenched in one-to-one communications and GroupMe being the thing that was going to be the future of group communications amongst close ties. So there was a lot of natural alignment there.
0: And reflecting on that sale to a strategic here, were there any key lessons that you learned?
1: So I think alignment is really important, like understanding what a shared vision is and what your role is amongst that shared vision is absolutely critical so that you can enter into that type of arrangement or deal and have some like common ground idea of what the future is going to look like and how you're going to directly contribute to it. You know, team preservation is absolutely critical. Group me by the time we sold, we had nineteen people, but it was nineteen exceptional, hyper talented, wonderful people. And you just want to make sure you're doing everything possible to share with the team, keep the team intact, and make sure people are excited and bought into what you're trying to do as well. And then there's just like some deal mechanic stuff that, you know, I think we learned, which is mainly like when you are doing any deal, whether it's MA or any type of financing. One thing that one of our advisors and mentors taught us, this guy, Emil Michael, who was the chief business officer at Uber, was that time kills all deals. So whenever you kind of enter into any one of these types of inflection points or financing or M&A type events, you wanna do everything you can to accelerate momentum and keep your foot on the gas.
0: And what were some ways that you found yourself accelerating that timeline and instilling a sense of urgency? You probably
1: understand a lot of this working in venture capital, but there's a lot of things that go into deal mechanics, like how competitive of a scenario or situation are Are there multiple bidders? What are the types of things that you can actually do to ensure that you're willing to lock yourself into one provider? But like, hey, you actually will open up this deal again if you surpass like a 20 day threshold. So really just trying to time box and milestone out how to get things done and stick to that timeline with there being some form of like repercussion if those timelines or milestones are not hit by those certain dates i think it's just really effective you don't want things to drag out for too long so part of it is just good contract negotiation and letting people know like hey this deal will become more competitive if we don't accomplish a b or c by this specific date
0: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there because I'm often on both sides of this table where you're constantly balancing that competitive tension with that certainty to close and and not wanting to play too much of a game of a chicken, but wanting to maximize value and then maximize certainty to close. So it's always a really interesting dynamic. And unfortunately, there's no silver bullet answer and it's so case by case, but it's definitely a very interesting experience to live through. Curious though with that, are there any specific tidbits of knowledge or anything that you wish you had done better in order to further maximize that sale price to the strategic?
1: Oh wow, good question. You know, we always like look back, and then a couple of years later, saw WhatsApp and Facebook it sold for like eighteen billion dollars, and you kind yep. of wonder if we have ever been that. Through uh, <laughs> me, you know, since the acquisition has probably grown thirty or fifty fold, and I think it's an immensely valuable application and property for virtually any other company out there. You know, not just Microsoft, but with really could be immensely valuable to a Facebook or to a Google or to a Twitter or to a Snapchat or to anybody who wants to just be better entrenched amongst like the college demographic and beyond. So like, do I have seller's remorse? Sometimes I go back and wonder what if, but I wouldn't change a thing. Like if you go back to like where our heads were at that point in time, it was really nice to get a win under our belts. There were a lot of factors that propelled that decision. Like, namely, are we going to run out of money? Yes, we're going to run out of money. we got to continue raising tons more venture capital and diluting ourselves in order to actually sustain this service. So what was really just most important to us at the end of the day was, are we going to win, right? Will this turn into a transformative service that's used by tens of millions of people across the country? And, you know, with that being the ultimate end goal, we think the decision was ultimately the right one. Like, that's what it is today, and I found a home that can continue to sustain it and invest in it, and we're
0: happy about that. Got it, and just to clarify with the audience here, what exactly is GroupMe's monetization model, or is it really just an eyeballs kind of play in order to build out a healthier ecosystem for Microsoft and Skype?
1: You know, I no longer work at GroupMe, but when you boot up the app, I think it becomes increasingly evident that the monetization model is nothing. For a while, we were selling custom emoji packs, which actually are really a lot of fun and I think we're picked up pretty well, but there is no monetization model today, and it's unclear if there ever will be.
0: Got it, that makes sense. So then, as you reflect after the sale, right, I think a lot of founders that we work with are constantly looking for that alignment with strategics, and then also worried about a change in culture once they sell to a strategic, and yes, it's it's fine if you're planning to exit with the transaction itself, but is there any advice you'd give founders who are selling to a strategic, still think there's a lot of runway within the business themselves, still really enjoy the mission and want to continue working with their team? Any specific insights or advice you'd give them?
1: So my insights and advice are probably very different than other entrepreneurs who have sold their company because I can only fall back on one experience. And I think every experience is fundamentally different. Ours, I think, was unique in the sense that when we sold Skype two months later, their, the acquisition between them and Microsoft closed. It was announced before our deal was. So we were well aware that we were ultimately going to end up becoming Microsoft employees, but really unaware of what the implication on GroupMe actually was or would be. So we kind of entered when the acquisition closed. We kind of were at the top of the totem pole in regards to priorities and what the future looked like for social and group communication for Skype. And then all of a sudden, once the Microsoft Skype deal closed, well, they had a whole new set of priorities, like a multi-year roadmap in regards to how they were going to integrate across all Microsoft properties and what the future lay in store for, for Skype. So we kind of became top priority or a top priority to bottom of the totem pole. And that I think was pretty frustrating for us. And what ended up happening was we were kind of just left to operate independently in New York city. And continue to hire people and continue to scale the service, and continue to have fun. And that kind of created this weird vibe, I think, between like amongst Steve and I, which was like, we entered for the entire year before that we were kind of like fighting for our life. There was all this inherent risk, right? Like, are we going to go out of business because of these SMS costs? Facebook had bought one of our competitors a company called Beluga and was launching Facebook messenger. There were all these other startups that were kind of like nipping at our heels with similar pieces. And Google was launching Google Hangouts or Google Circles, I think it was at that point in time. Like we were just getting attacked from all these different angles, and everybody was kind of like converging on the future of social networks around intimacy and you know deep connections with the people that you know and trust. And the second we were acquired, like all that risk was kind of stripped from us. It was like we're safe now. And what I have kind of realized personally was like I was addicted to some of that risk and that rush. And once that was gone, I kind of just felt like this deep void. So I just had to try to find ways to fill that deep void. So I would say just from like a very personal perspective and post-acquisition like experiences, perhaps for many entrepreneurs, there is this sentiment that like you are missing a piece of you, whether it's the risk, whether it's the you know, like the inherent drive and motivation, whether it's something, like find a way to fill that void. And for me, a lot of that just came from kind of paying it forward and working with other entrepreneurs and investing and advising other companies and entrepreneurs in New York City and across the country. So that's one thing that I learned. The second thing I would learn, like I think I talked about this at the beginning of our conversation, like ensuring clear alignment of what the roadmap looks like. For us, there was a kink that was thrown into everything the second that the deal closed or the Skype Microsoft deal closed, which was that like we threw everything around the, out the window in regards to integration. That was probably unavoidable, but I think we were relatively inexperienced and didn't recognize that that was going to happen in all likelihood. So I would just like make sure that understand what the risks are to any form of integration plan and what you're actually trying to accomplish with the acquisition.
0: And I can definitely echo that loss of existential meaning or fulfillment to some degree, where it's that risk that keeps you going and that sense of urgency and and excitement. So with that, I would assume that's part of the onus for why you started Fundera was to get back into the founder seat and start building another business. Would love to hear a little bit about that rationale and then what pain points you're trying to solve today.
1: Sure. So, I mean, the rationale was partially that, like I knew I wanted to start another company like the amount of time we operated GroupMe as an independent company was slim, right? Like roughly a year. So I had a lot of time to reflect when I was at Skype and Microsoft, roughly two years. And I started to think about what it was I wanted to do next. And the ones I used was pretty much like, what did we not get to do at GroupMe? And at GroupMe, we didn't really get an opportunity to build a real business. I, when I think about what is real business, it's something that actually generates revenue and can be a viable independent company one day. And we also never had a really opportunity to build a real company. And the way I think about a real company is something that has like a long-term transformative impact on an industry and the lives of, and the career trajectory of all of our employees. Ruby was an incredible experience, but we ended up just building like a really great product and a really great brand. And for me, I wanted to continue to learn and try new things that I had never done before. So ironically, what that meant is build a real business and build a real company. So that was the lens that I was using as I was beginning to evaluate new opportunities. And then the idea for GroupMe happened serendipitously. I was doing angel investing. One of the companies I wanted to invest in was actually my cousin's business who owns a chain of restaurants called fusion based in Ohio. At that point in time, he had two locations open and I tried to make an equity investment to help him open up his third. He rejected me because he didn't want anybody else on the cap table, asked for a loan instead. And I said, absolutely, no, go to a bank. And he told me he went to three different banks and was rejected by them. And that was a very weird red flag for me because he had a business that employed 60 people, had two locations. Both those locations were profitable, doing several hundred thousand dollars in EBITDA, had been around for four years with a proven business model. Couldn't get $300,000 to open up a third location. And I come from the world of the consumer internet where GroupMe and Tumblr were able to raise tens of millions of dollars with zero dollars in revenue. So it was like, what in the world is going on here? And I was a little bit familiar with this concept of online lending. I heard of companies like OnDeck and Lending Club before. So I went online with my cousin Zach to search for small business loans. Like we literally typed in small business loans to see what he could get. And all the organic search results were literally the banks that had just rejected him. And all the search marketing ads were payday lenders, predatory loan brokers and terrible lead generation services. There was no objective source of truth, like a Wikipedia for small business lending that would educate him or other small business owners on the different types of products or lenders and how they all worked and which ones would be best for the business. And there was no web application that enabled the small business owner to shop for credit the same way they shop for everything else in their lives, which is what are all my options? What do these options actually mean? What are the prices? So how do I do some basic price comparison? And how do I seamlessly buy the thing that I actually want? And Ultimately came to the conclusion that the internet had literally just not happened to the world of small business lending. Small business owners were massively underserved in the grand scheme of things. They're often you know, sold a bunch of shit that they don't need and just treated kind of like pawns and they're the backbone of our economy. They employ more than half the people in the country. They deserve a fair shot at success and also deserve to have the same type of tools and experiences that are delightful to consumers extended to them. And ultimately decided to make the internet happen to small business lending. And that's where we started Fundera.
0: And in terms of the business model itself, from my understanding, it diagnoses the exact needs or options available to a small business. And then are you generating revenue via some sort of referral or affiliate fee?
1: Yeah, it's an origination. So very similar to like Amazon, where you are buying a thing directly from Amazon. you are got like kicks to a third party site to buy something. That's the experience at Fundera, where you come to Fundera, you complete a loan application with us, We assess your eligibility, present to you different products and offers that we think are a best fit for your business. You select which one you want and check out. And once we've happily found you um, the right product, the right solution for your business, the lender that actually services that product, these types of lenders might be companies like Banks, like Amex, Chase Cap One, or OnDeck, or Lending Club, Large Cabbage, Large Online Lenders. They pay us an origination fee every time they successfully acquire a new customer, and that customer is happy with their offer.
0: And what's interesting to me here is this dichotomy between how you scale a consumer app like GroupMe that's inherently viral, and then how you build a platform in a highly regulated and very slow-moving industry. So I'm curious, what were some lessons learned in terms of building a platform, integrating with these slow-moving banks and working with them and and working through regulation? What were some of your key takeaways?
1: One key takeaway is it's just really difficult. (laughs) Me, I kind of categorize as like 80% luck, 20% executing against the luck. Like we built a good product, the right thing, right place, right time, and captured lightning in a bottle and ran with it. Here, it's kind of the inverse equation, where it's like 20% luck and then 80% just raw execution and commitment. And these types of businesses are really difficult to build. I've come to the realization that that's actually a really good thing. Like one thing that actually does make businesses defensible in the grand scheme of things is just that it's really hard. It requires a lot of time, a lot of investment, a lot of institutional knowledge that you acquire over a multi-year period, a lot of like cycles on product development and relationship building with partners that just take time and commitment to actually see the fruits of your labor. So I think one of the things that I have realized kind of entering an industry where the players that you work with are either highly regulated or like not necessarily at the bleeding edge of what is possible from like, a pure digital perspective is that like that time and investment that you commit to making change pays dividends in the long run. You're actually able to like move the needle on transforming an industry and build something defensible, highly defensible over an extended period of time.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I would definitely echo that sentiment as I think about the enterprise software companies we build and how long some of those sales cycles can be and those partnership cycles. Is there any sort of trick or methodology you use to help accelerate getting more or less closing a partnership with one of the banks in your ecosystem, any way that you help catalyze and speed up a deal?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's some things like with any marketplace, you always have a chicken and egg problem between supply and demand. So you're always like, how do you balance those two sides of the equation? I think for some of the supply side of the marketplace, one of the things that's most intriguing to them is that we acquire customers in a totally different way than they're used to. Like if you look at a bank or a traditional online lender, they're used to acquiring customers through like either a retail branch or through some offline marketing medium, whether that's direct mail, television, or honestly like a human intermediary, like a broker. So that means that we have to go out there and acquire customers in a fundamentally different way. So that we're opening up brand new channels for all of our supply side and for us. The most intuitive place to start was with where the company started, which was a Google search, like typed in small business loans and all the results we got back did not actually satisfy like the intent behind the inquiry. We were looking for information. So one of the earliest investments that we made was actually just in writing the highest quality informational objective content on the internet that would be useful to as many small business owners as possible. And now we have close to a million monthly unique visitors who come to Fundera just searching for information and we're providing them answers to the questions that they were never able to actually find before. And that's really intriguing to a lot of our lender partners because all of a sudden there are all these people who are searching for information, which is a really positive indicator. Like these are highly intelligent people who are actually trying to make educated decisions and doing the research and putting in the time before they actually decide to buy something. And that unlocks a lot of interest and a lot of kind of commitment amongst our supply side partners and has been Granted, this is like compounding like payback period here. It takes years to develop this type of thing. But that in and of itself truly does generate a lot of interest and commitment on behalf of supply side partners.
0: And as that content driven and digitally native acquisition platform really turns into a flywheel, have you run any studies in terms of how much lower your customer acquisition cost is for your lending partners using Fundera relative to their legacy offline acquisition methods? We
1: have, and for us, like our goal is not necessarily to be the lowest cost acquisition channel for all of our partners. We're not a non-profit business. We are a for-profit business, and we wanna make sure that we're generating enough revenue to service our mission of helping millions of small business owners prosper. For us, really, the focus is on how do we become a high-quality and consistent, predictable acquisition channel for some of our lender partners.
0: Yep, and I think coming to a webpage, Reading your content is one of the purest forms of intent that you can have. So I'd really agree with you there. Is there any sense of scale you can give the audience for how large the business is? Maybe the total dollars originated on the platform last year or anything like that?
1: So last year we actually crossed a billion dollars in aggregate financing through our marketplace, which is a really proud moment for us. It took us a while to get there, but you no know, close to half of that actually happened last year alone and it was the same kind of stat the year before. So, we're really, really excited about the growth that we're experiencing. I think we're also somewhat unusual for most venture backed startups at this stage. Like, our last round was a series B round that closed, I think, in the end of 2015, early 2016, maybe. Like, we're a break even slash profitable business on a month to month basis now, employing 105 people here in New York City, which I think is the exception not the rule when it comes to most venture-backed startups. So we're just proud to be in a place where we've been able to service tens of thousands of small business owners, fund over a billion dollars in financing through our marketplace, and also build viable business where the future is now, our fate and destiny is now within our own control.
0: Yeah, congratulations on that. I think we'll shift to the last part of the conversation here, Jared, which is centers around the title of this podcast, which is pattern recognition. Going back to your group days here, what are some recurring themes or patterns that you see consistently across successful and viral consumer applications?
1: That is a great question. You may not like my answer. I think one pattern is that luck play, especially in viral consumer applications, whether they're web or mobile-based consumer applications, luck is so paramount Mm -hmm. to everything in that space. You can be one of the best consumer-minded entrepreneurs or product managers in the world, but you have to get lucky in order to strike gold. There is an element of just building the right thing at the right place at the right time, having some kernel of insight and making sure that that is just timed to perfection in order for one of these things to actually take off and work.
0: And what about on the choose your own destiny side? Anything beyond luck that you see? People make all the difference. Like, right? that is
1: something that's tried and true, which you'll hear many entrepreneurs or founders or CEOs say. Like, people make all the difference. Companies do not work if you don't have exceptional teams behind them, constantly figuring out what is the next thing, how do we improve previous things. How do we think about rapidly accelerating our progress so we can more quickly achieve our mission and vision?
0: So then let's focus on people there. I mean, at Fundera, at GroupMe, how are you going about finding and then convincing the top tier talent to come work for you as opposed to work for Google or Goldman Sachs or McKinsey?
1: Well, at GroupMe, one of the things that we had going for us was that most everybody who actually joined the company was just in love with the application. Like they were addicted to it. They were the types of people who every day were spinning up new groups, just like proselytizing the joy that GroupMe brings to the world and getting as many people to use it as possible. Like GroupMe was their application of choice and they just wanted to work on it so that they could make it better day in, day out. At Fundera, it's slightly different, right? Most of the people who work at Fundera are not small business owners. They may not be end users of the product, but most of the people who work at Fundera do have a connection to the mission, right? Maybe they come from a family of small business owners. Maybe one of their best friends is a small business owner. They can directly feel the pain point that people in their lives have experienced before and deeply understand the importance of what we're trying to do, giving small business owners a leg up and optimizing their chances of success. So for us at Fundera, we really look for people who are deeply entrenched in our mission, meaning like they have nothing but empathy for small business owners. And also live and breathe our values, right? So they are people who can walk in the shoes of our end customers, people who are proactive, people who are open and can constructively share criticism with one another and constantly elevate the game. I think that's a primary distinction in the way we actually think about things.
0: And is there a business leader out there that is a role model for you? And how have they changed your perspective on being a founder?
1: That's a great question. Yeah, I would say that there are, I, I've been like blessed and fortunate enough to work with like a whole wide variety of mentors and advisors over the course of my career. You know, my co-founder from GroupMe, who's my business partner today, we do all of our angel investing together and help each other build each other's companies. Steve Mortosi is is very much a role model of mine. I think he's one of the most creative product-minded entrepreneurs and founders out there and also just blossomed into a tremendous operator and ceo he's got a company called Splice now there's a handful of other people that have i'd say deeply influenced or helped me along the way there's a guy who's an investor and advisor to fundera named david rosenblatt who's now the ceo of first dibs and before that was a ceo at DoubleClick, which ended up selling at google for around three billion dollars he's just a fantastic operator and also extremely helpful when i come to him with pointed questions there's a woman who's on our board named Molly Graham, was not a founder or CEO, but she was at Google, early at Facebook, and she was the COO at Quip. And she really just helps me think about the world and people in a totally new way, and has been really like a mentor and coach to me when it comes to thinking about team development, people management as well. So just like NetNet, pretty blessed to have been able to work with and mentored by a whole wide variety of, of people over the course of my career.
0: That's great. Well, Jared, I think that's actually all the time we have for today. Appreciate you taking the time and looking forward to posting the episode.
1: Awesome. Thanks, John. Appreciate it.
0: Once again, a big thank you to Jared for joining us today. It's always a blessing to get to hear from serial founders who've experienced business building across multiple cycles. Now, if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you gave a quick rating and review as well, as send any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can also check out show notes and more on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com and reach me on Twitter at John Heasy or on Instagram at John G. Who. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.